Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. True story. The Gilberts rented the second floor unit of their newly purchased, newly remodeled two-family home in East Flatbush, Brooklyn, to a married couple and their three children. It was their first experience as landlords. Two years of unrelenting misery later, they were getting their first chance to see why their ceilings were coated with urine and the stairwell leading to the, the rental unit was ravaged by an unbearable stench. A downstairs, uh, dangerous upstairs water leak had given Gilbert emergency access to the, the apartment. Stepping into the swarm of flies that engulfed the second floor landing that August day, the landlord mounted her phone to a selfie stick and steeled herself for a gruesome sight. That's not the whole story. That's just one chapter of a nightmare, uh, real-life nightmare-landlord-tenant relationship that's still, today, awaiting its day on the docket in housing court. Uh, the tenants have regularly clogged the toilet with baby wipes, causing it to overflow into the landlord's downstairs living quarters. They've had to endure loud fights and even louder music dark, way you know, late into the night. Before too long after they moved in, an adult son uh, moved in with his friend and his dog, a lease violation, but police told the Gilberts there was really nothing they could do. A parent was allowed to have their sons move in with them. The owners weren't allowed to, uh, really allowed access to inspect the, the rental unit either. Text messages weren't returned. They finally notified the nightmare tenants that their lease would not be renewed for a second year. But by that time, COVID eviction moratoriums were in place. The renters told them that they weren't leaving, and on top of that, they stopped paying, even though their husband had, the husband had a good job with the city. They told the landlord, you can't do anything, and we can do anything we want. I have to wonder how many times that's happened, right? One day, they watched as the older son and his friend brought empty cages into the unit, and then the smell came, and the barking. They suspected more dogs, especially when strangers began knocking on their door and uh, inquiring about dogs for sale. Following the tenant's social media, they discovered that the son was leaving town, taking a trip to Florida, but no one seemed to show up to care for the dogs. Before long, dog urine was running down the walls into their children's bedroom. After a call to the ASPCA, an NYPD animal cruelty officer came to the house, managed to speak with a friend, and the friend told them, well, we only have three dogs, and the, uh, the officer left without entering. A few weeks later, the tenants started another flood in the ceiling, and this time, when the police came, they did grant the owner permission to enter, and it was worse than they imagined. There was actually a total of 21 dogs, some confined three to a cage, others chained to the floor. The unit was covered in animal waste. The dogs were removed. The son's friend was arrested for animal cruelty. But that night, the son came home. And when he found the dogs were gone, he attacked the owner's wife, physically attacked her, while two other sons uh, trapped the husband in his car. She managed to, to get away um, and called 911. Since November, she's been living under a protection order against the mother and son. Actually, the family has pretty much disappeared. But the owners are still not allowed access to the unit to clean up the mess or, or make repairs until the case comes up in housing court. It seems the tenants still have occupancy rights. It's an ongoing story. The $60,000 in back rent they're owed, it's the last thing they care about at this point. Uh, all they really want is to get their house back. 
Landlord-tenant issues can be brutal sometimes, and they can be expensive. And maybe some of you have your own stories to tell. Jesus tells a good one in today's gospel lesson. It's a very pointed one, uh, one that he's clearly talking about his own impending death. But to really understand the impact it must have had, you need a little background. First, it's included in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospels. So somebody, you know, pretty high up must think it's pretty important. Plus, because it's in all three Gospels, we get more details than we would if it were just in one. Plus, it takes place in Holy Week, probably Tuesday following Palm Sunday, which is just a week away now for us. Uh, But sometimes we can get focused so much on Good Friday after the Palm Sunday celebration, we can forget that Jesus did a lot of important ministry during that that last week, leading right up to his, his Friday date with a cross. And bear in mind, too, that the time he has left is short. And so he doesn't pull any punches when he tells the parable. Not only does he pull back the curtain on his impending death, but it reveals the severe judgment that will befall those who are responsible for it. Luke tells us that every day Jesus could be found teaching in the temple. And that the chief priests, the Pharisees, the other leaders of the people, members of the Sanhedrin, the governing body, uh, were well along in their plot to kill him. The only thing that had stopped them was his enormous popularity with common, everyday folks. Since Jesus didn't fit their notion of the expected Messiah to begin with, the leaders, uh, he was simply trouble for them, a deluded man who claimed to be God's son. But they couldn't ignore him because he was also the man who was coming dangerously close to unplugging their ATM. His ministry was relatively young, just three and a half years. But in all that time, the pressure had been building between our Lord and those who were supposed to be shepherding God's people. The problem was that the shepherds had come to love their religious traditions and the power and the prestige it brought them more than they loved God and neighbor. They'd become the epitome of hypocrisy, blinded to God's love and God's word and God's truth, and especially especially to God's son. And now in his own way, Jesus lets them have it with a parable that stung like, Will Smith slapped a Chris Rock at the Oscars. It's a story about a man who was the owner of a vineyard. Now, vineyard imagery was used by God before, especially in Isaiah, and it represents the Hebrew people. And these teachers of the law would have recognized that connection. Through the prophet, God talks about how he loved it and cared for it, how he loved his people, cared for his people. But it would only produce wild, bitter grapes and was therefore destined for destruction. It starts out as a sort of love song. Um, This is in Isaiah chapter 5. Now I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a rich and fertile hill. He plowed the land, cleared its stones, and planted it with the best vines. In the middle he built a watchtower and carved a wine press in the nearby rocks. Then he waited for a harvest of sweet grapes, but the grapes that grew were bitter. Now, you people of Jerusalem and Judah, you judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I have not already done? When I expected sweet grapes, why did my vineyard give me bitter grapes? It was a picture of that old story, wasn't it? The on-again, off-again relationship God had with his his beloved people. In Jesus' story, God the Father is, is still the vineyard owner, just like in Isaiah 700 years earlier. He was the one who had prepared the ground, had planted the vines, dug the wine press, even built a wall and a watchtower to protect it. But in real life, he'd literally led them to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. He cared for his people. He set them apart, gave them great 
uh, victories over their enemies there and protected them. And the story in real life, you know, it had been a major investment. And now this man in Jesus' story takes a trip. And while he's gone, he puts his vineyard in the care and supervision of some tenants. The tenants in the story represent the religious leaders of the Jews, the very people Jesus is having this conversation with. It was a, a common arrangement back then for rent to be a share of the crop. It was an extended trip, so when the harvest time came, the man sends a messenger to collect what's, what's owed him, right? God's messengers in the Old Testament were his prophets. The renters promptly beat him up and sent the messenger away empty-handed. So he sends a second representative and then a third. Matthew says they beat one, stoned one, and killed one, still refusing to hand over what was due. It was a vineyard that was becoming increasingly violent and, and totally out of control, clearly. Even the young Christian church's first martyr, Stephen, would accuse the, the leaders of the Jews just before he was stoned to death. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. The message Isaiah brought God's people goes on to talk about his re this, this rebellious attitude. Uh, God says, you know, through Isaiah, what more could I have done, right? I expected sweet grapes. Why did my vineyard give me bitter grapes? And the religious leaders and the kings over the centuries as well were expected to bring their people closer to God or bring them back to God if, they, if they'd wandered, which happened often. And, and they hadn't done that, most of them, not all of them, but most of them hadn't. And they'd been held to account for it. These men at the temple this morning have been plotting and planning Jesus' death for some time now. And there was going to be a price to pay. They knew the prophecies in Isaiah. They just didn't see themselves as starring in them. Uh, and Isaiah goes on, now let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. <clears throat> Speaking for God, right? I will tear down its hedges and let it be destroyed. I will break down its walls and let the animals trample it. I will make it a wild place where the vines are not pruned and the ground is not hoed, a place overgrown with briars and thorns. I will command the clouds to drop no rain on it. The nation of Israel is the vineyard of the Lord of hosts. The people of Judah are his pleasant garden. He expected a crop of justice, but instead he found oppression. He expected to find righteousness, but instead he heard cries of violence. Now you jump back to Jesus' parable, and the tenants may have beaten and even killed the vineyard's owner, owner's messengers, but for some reason he wasn't about to give up. On Luke's version of the story, the vineyard owner wonders to himself, what shall I do? And the light bulb goes off, and he goes, I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they'll respect him. If you're reading this, you go, no, don't do it. Don't do it, right? My beloved son was what the father called Jesus at his baptism, wasn't it? Remember? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. But when the son arrived, Jesus said they threw him out of the vineyard too, and they killed him. It's a reminder to us really that the crucifixion would take place outside the walls of Jerusalem. And since Jesus was telling this parable, probably Tuesday of Holy Week, he was describing what was going to happen just three days later. Then Jesus asks, what do you think the owner will do to them? Now, in one way, it was rhetorical. They had a pretty good idea about the answer. But here comes the zinger, the face slap. He says, he will come and destroy those tenants 
Then give the vineyard to others who will give him their fruits in season. And all his listeners can say is, surely not. But that's exactly what will happen. The whole city, including a beautiful temple, will be destroyed less than a generation later in 70 AD uh, to put down a rebellion of the Jews against Rome. But the story isn't just about vengeance or even correction. It's also about patience, something we don't really catch sometimes in this, the incredible patience of God. <clears throat> as hard as it is to believe that the vineyard owner would even dare to send his own son to the tenants after they'd beaten and killed the other messengers, that's how hard it is to believe that God the Father would send his son into the world after he'd seen how his people treated the prophets he'd sent. Matthew says, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard this, this, this parable, um, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they, the crowds, held him to be a prophet. But all that really means is they wait for a better time, maybe a more secluded place, like Garden of Gethsemane on Thursday night where Jesus was arrested. Another thing, you know, to you and I, it's unthinkable to even think that the tenants who killed the owner's son would ever expect to take over the ownership of the vineyard, especially while the vineyard owner was still alive. But selfish ambition and greed can blind us to the presence of God too. And in real life, even nightmare tenants are eventually evicted. In the parable of the vineyard, uh, it would eventually be rented out to new tenants. See, Jesus is already anticipating the entrance of the Gentiles into the church, the non-Jews, uh, people who will accept him and embrace him. When the Jewish synagogues rejected the preaching of the Apostle Paul about God's new way by faith in Christ, he turned to the Gentiles, the new Israel. And within one generation, Gentiles outnumbered Jews in the, in the Christian church. Israel's religious believer, uh, leaders had a long history of silencing the prophets God had sent, and he'd sent plenty. But what they were really doing was silencing the word of God that the prophets brought. They didn't want to hear that it was God's vineyard that they were messing with or that it was, they were God's grapes. They didn't want to hear that God had simply entrusted them with the care uh, of it for a time, that the vineyard still belonged to him and always would. They didn't want to hear about the fruit they should be bearing as God's people, Things like kindness and mercy and justice and love. Fruits that grow out of a life of true righteousness. A life lived in response to God's love for us. Something that's pretty easy to forget sometimes. Now I suspect that there have been plenty of times when, when uh, you and I have acted as if the world were our kingdom instead of his. You know, times we forget that we're just tenants on this earth as well, not the owner. That this earth and everything in it really are just on loan from God. You know, why else would we make some of the bad choices that we do? Unless we felt like we were at the top of the food chain and there would never, never be any accounting for bad behavior. Sometimes we act like owners, but we're just tenants. God is still the landloader. This really is our Heavenly Father's world. He made the world and everything in it. The, the, he made the trees and the plants that give us food. He makes the rain to fall and the sun to shine. The land is fruitful and blessed, and we're really privileged to be able to tend and care for it. But God is still the owner. He owned it before we were around, and he'll own it long after we're gone. The fact that he's not visibly present doesn't change that fact. And it doesn't change the role we played in the son's death, either. Every time we act self-centered instead of selfless, 
we swing the hammer that drove the nails into our Lord's flesh. Every time we ignore his teachings or, or we blow them off as old-fashioned or out of touch with our modern society, irrelevant, that we drive the spear deeper into his side. Jesus quotes two verses from Psalm 118 when he says, the stone the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. The cornerstone was the most important stone. It squared everything up, supported things. Our parable this morning isn't the end of the sun story, though. In real life, it didn't end in defeat and death, but in victory. The one who would soon be rejected and nailed to a cross outside the city gates would become the cornerstone of a new kingdom. Jesus turned the defeat of death into victory, turned the grave into new life when he rose from the dead on Easter morning. He ushered in a righteousness that would be ours by faith. You see, in spite of our tendency to be unfaithful to the Son in so many ways, the Father remains faithful to us. And rather than destroy his wicked tenants, God patiently invites us to repent and return to him. His love knows no bounds. Until the day the Landover once again sends his Son, this time to set all things right, we'll always have another chance. That's a good news ending to what uh, was meant to be, at least by Jesus' enemies, a very bad news story. So praise be to God. Amen. And now may that very special peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen. And we'll take a second now to, re to uh, receive your gift.